The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'm sure that many of you have thought of the oddity, or perhaps even the irony, that this Easter falls on April the 1st. For skeptics and agnostics and for atheists that reject the conscience and the law that God has written on the heart, the irony that Christianity's most significant day falls on April Fool's Day is not lost. And so I'm sure that there are many basking in the glory of their witticisms because they have a golden opportunity to mock Christians that have gathered to celebrate the resurrection of Christ. And those that think that way, this, this message is one they really need to hear. They are candidates for what I have to say today. This message is not special because it is inventive. It's not as if no one's ever preached this before. Now, this is the problem of the condition of the heart that makes it necessary that the gospel of our salvation be 100% by God's grace. Everyone needs this message, and certainly skeptics must have God change their hearts in order to receive it. Now, I'd like for you to open your Bibles to the last book of the Bible. Our text is Revelation chapter 3, verses 20 through 22. And this message will serve as the last in our series of the seven churches of Asia. Chapters 2 and 3 are timeless letters to churches. They were written by Jesus Christ, who is the head of the church, and we can see him in this text because he is alive. These letters were inspired by the Holy Spirit and given to the Apostle John about 60 years after the death of Christ. But in the first chapter of Revelation, we see that John saw him. It had been 60 years since the resurrection, and John saw him again as the gloriously exalted Christ. His description of him is in chapter 1, where he is clothed with a long robe and a golden belt. His hair is white like wool, and his eyes are uh, at, like a flaming fire, and his feet are like fine brass that have been burned in a furnace. And he says to John in verse number 18 of chapter 1, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen and have the keys of hell and of death. He was dead. For three days he was dead, and then under his own power he came back to life, and he lives forever. And this book of Revelation was given to John to tell us that Christ was dead, he is alive, and that he is coming again. And this book is preparation for his return when he will come to end this world as we know it. Now, in these last days, we're warned that churches will become corrupt, that people will go to church, but they'll not hear the truth about Jesus. The church will become self-focused rather than Christ-centered, and it will be deceived by pretenders who will teach them that satisfying their self is the most important. The last days are characterized by a false church, and if people believe the lies of a false teacher, they'll not seek truth. Why do you seek truth if you think that you've already found it? And so this text is very important because in it we find a Christ that people never seek. 
Our hearts are dead towards him. And if we are to come to him, he must first seek us. Now, in the last of the seven letters, Jesus said to the Laodicean church, this is the church that is in apostasy. He said, you think that you're rich and you have all that you need, but you don't know that you're spiritually poor, that you are miserable, you're blind and you're naked, and you're lost in your sins. You need more. You need me. In verse number 18, he said, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear and anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. And those are spiritual metaphors representing faith that withstands trials and holiness that covers the shamefulness of our sins and minds that have been opened to the understanding of the marvelous grace of God. Now, if you look at our text verses in chapter 3, beginning with verse 20, Jesus ends the letter with these words. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And that is not possible if Christ is not alive. If he's still in a tomb in Israel, he's unable to knock on any doors. And unless he is alive, he keeps no promises. And unless he is alive, Christianity is dead and we have no hope. Now on this April Fool's Day... The fool is the skeptic, and he must answer some baffling questions. How is a dead man affirmed to be alive, and how has this man captured the attention of people for now 20 centuries? Why do people affirm the supernatural, and why do they believe his teachings and have gone to their deaths with his name on their lips? Why did people come to this country on voyages that took months and they crossed oceans on rickety ships that you wouldn't even dare ride across Lake Sonoma? Why would they risk their lives for religious freedom to worship someone who's dead and can't help them? Why were there revivals like the first and second great awakenings when there were multiple thousands of people in this country that committed their lives to this man? And why does the government of the most powerful nation on earth still acknowledge that they must deal with his claims even though many of our leaders would prefer to never hear of Christianity again? There are billions of people across the globe who believe that Christ is alive. And on this day, there are church bells that ring across the world from lavish cathedrals to tribes that are meeting under trees. The resurrection of a dead man is celebrated. So who are the fools on this day? Is it the skeptic or is it the believer? Who are the ones that have hope? And who has contentment? Is that the skeptic or is it the believer? And so to defeat Christianity, Satan knows that he must defeat this day. And he was unable to prevent the, the resurrection. And so his next best attempt is to get people to deny that it's true. Now for 32 weeks we've discussed the church. We've looked at the ups and downs of the church and We've seen the good and bad until we've come to the final part of this final church that is on the list. And this is the church at Laodicea. And it represents the fruits of Satan's efforts. This is a church that has turned away from Christ. 
And the past eight messages have, have described this and the reasons for it. So I'm not going to preach those parts again. But instead, I want you to look at the conclusion. And the result of the rejection of Jesus Christ is verse number 20. And that is that Christ is not in the church. He's outside the door of the church. And he's left outside knocking. And he won't go into fellowship with this church. He'll not go in where he isn't wanted. And above all, I want to emphasize that this is a text that is about the church. This is not an evangelism text, although it is often used that way. And that's the aspect of it that I want to deal with today. We've looked at the church side of this. And now I'd like to examine uh, this verse, Revelation 3.20, from evangelism mode. And if we are to use this verse for evangelism, we need to understand what it takes to make this work properly. How are we to understand Revelation 3 verse 20? Now in the last message I showed you a, a famous painting from the 19th century. This is the best image that I could get although this one is not the original. And it conveys the idea of the original and it shows Jesus standing outside of a door knocking. And this door is supposed to be the door of Revelation 3:20, and the title of this painting is Christ standing at the heart's door. The original painting was titled Christ the Light of the World. And one of the unique aspects of this painting, and I, and I mean more unique than nobody knows what Jesus looked like, and more unique than the scriptures absolutely forbidding us to make pictures of Jesus. That's in the second commandment. But this door is unique because it has no knob on the outside. I don't believe any of you have seen a door that's the only entrance to a house but doesn't have a knob or a latch or something that lets you in. And so how does anybody on the outside get inside if the only doorknob is on the inside? And so this picture is supposed to cleverly represent Christ on the outside and he can't gain entrance except someone on the inside should let him in. And this door is supposed to represent the human heart and that Christ is powerless to come in unless you decide to open the door. One author wrote, Every man is the Lord of the house of his own heart. It is his fortress. He must open the gates of it. He has the mournful prerogative and privilege of refusing to open. Another said, Christ pleads and offers... But it's, to all, it's all to no avail if we will not open the door. And I'd like to say that that is an exceedingly painful prospect if it's true. If Christ is powerless to open the door except we let him in, then we are utterly hopeless and helpless to be saved. Oddly enough, it was an atheist, an April fool, who said nearly the same thing. William Ernest Henley in his famous poem Invictus wrote this line. He said, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And so in other words, he said, I am the one who controls my heart. I am in control of what happens to me. And that was an atheist, an unbeliever, who agreed with this picture. Now today I want to give you the biblical perspective of Christ standing outside of this door. And we don't take our understanding of Christ from paintings. We take it from the Bible. 2,000 years ago, Jesus was crucified in Jerusalem. Now, if you want to know what people will do with the Christ who's standing on the other side of that door, then all you need to do is look at the cross and see what they did to him. They slapped him, 
And they beat his face until he was unrecognizable. They took a hammer and rough iron spikes and drove them into his hands and his feet. Then they stripped him naked and they lifted the cross in shame for all to see. And they mocked him and they left him to hang in the hot Middle Eastern sun and they jeered him. And not satisfied that they had killed him, there was a spear that was thrust into his side to make sure that he was dead. And that spear penetrated his peritoneum. And they did this to a man that had healed them, a man that had helped them, a man who often fed them, a man that even raised people from the dead. They did this to a man who was always compassionate towards them, and they cruelly insisted that he should die, even though by individuals and courts he was declared to be an innocent man. If you look at the cross, you'll begin to understand what the person behind the door with no doorknob on the outside would do to Jesus who knocks from the other side. Jesus was taken down from the cross and after preparations for burial was placed in a tomb that had been chiseled out of solid rock. There were no windows in the tomb. There was no door except a massive rock that was rolled up to the entrance. And that was a circular stone of such great weight that it would take several men to put it in place. There were guards that were placed at the entrance of the tomb and it was sealed with the official seal of the Roman Empire. The power and the might of Caesar was in that seal and Jesus was on the inside with solid rock on three sides and one rock to the entrance that was impossible for him to move. And of course Jesus was dead. They didn't expect that he would move it. The rock wasn't placed there to keep him in. It was there to keep his disciples out from coming and stealing the body. And certainly there wasn't a handle on the rock and there wasn't an electric switch to open it. Now if you'll take your Bibles and turn to Luke 24, I can show you what happened to a door that had no handle. On the side where Jesus was, there was no method to move the rock. If you'll look at Luke 24 and verse number 1, Now upon the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came under the sepulcher, bringing the spices which they had prepared, and certain others with them. And they found the stone rolled away from the sepulcher, and they entered in, and found not the body of the Lord Jesus. And it came to pass, as they were much perplexed thereabout, behold, two men stood by them in shining garments, and as they were afraid, and bowed down their faces to the earth, they said unto them, Why seek ye the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spake unto you when he was yet in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. Now, folks, that is peculiarly strange. It appears that those on the other side of the rock did not want Jesus to come out of the tomb, and they left him no way out. They knew the claims that he said he would rise from the dead, and having seen him raise the dead, I, I believe that they weren't too sure that it couldn't happen. But then after a set time, after three days, Jesus said that door would open, and it did open, and Jesus was not kept from going where he wanted to go because someone locked a door on him. The disciples came to the tomb, and they found the stone was rolled away. And that resurrection power is the same power that opens every door that Jesus wants to open. 
Door handles, door locks, deadbolts on the inside will not keep a door from opening that Jesus wants to open. I suppose the primary thing that we want to know about the door would be this. Does he want to open it? Does he want to come in? And if he wants to come in, he will come in. I want to give you just a short outline for our message today. First is the resurrection of dead sinners to salvation. Now let me return to the statement I read a moment ago. Christ pleads and offers, but it is all to no avail if we will not open the door. Is that statement true? Well, the first clue is the emphasis of this point. Do you see that? It says dead sinners. On the other side of that door is a dead sinner. Now, in many places, the Bible uses dead to describe people who don't believe in Christ. Their spiritual health is death. And that's not exactly ideal for a spiritual response, is it? Now, obviously, uh, they're physically alive. Physical life is not a barrier to belief in Christ. The barrier is spiritual death, and that refers to the condition of the mind. It refers to the disposition of the will, that we are dead towards God. And to give you a couple of confirming references, uh, these would be familiar to most of you. Ephesians 2 verse 1, And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sin. In Ephesians 2 5, Even when we were dead in sins, hath he quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. In verse number 1, Ephesians 2 1, The term quickened means to be made alive. And that is the spiritual condition of the person behind the door. A living person doesn't need to be made alive. So it's speaking of the heart, the dead will, the man who's dead towards God and must be made alive to respond to the sound of the knock. Then likewise, we read in 1 Corinthians 2.14, But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, For they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. So the person who's on the other side of the door does not understand the spiritual world. There are two problems that exist in the heart of the person who is behind the door. He is spiritually dead and he can't understand spiritual things. And so when God speaks, he doesn't understand. And Christ can knock on that door for hours and hours and the dead will never hear a knock on his heart to know that he must open the door. If the door is to be opened, who is going to open the door? Well, the person on the inside won't do it. He can't open the door. He's spiritually dead. He's in that dead condition, so he's not going to open it. Doorknob or no doorknob, like coming out of a sealed tomb, Christ must open that door. Or if you prefer to say it this way, he must be the cause of that door opening. The same is described in Acts 16. And before I read this, I want to remind you of the title of the picture is Christ standing before the heart's door. And the scriptures clearly tell us who opens the door. Paul was preaching in the city of Philippi when he met a lady from Thyatira who just happened to live in one of those seven cities of the seven churches of Revelation. And her name was Lydia. And when he preached to her, this is what happened in verse 14 of that 16th chapter. And a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple of the city of Thyatira, which worshipped God, heard us, whose heart the Lord opened that she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. Now look at that carefully again. Who opened her heart? 
It doesn't say that Lydia opened the door. And it doesn't say that Paul opened the door. It was the Lord who opened her heart. And this is because on the other side of that door is a spiritually dead person. A dead person is unresponsive. I don't know if you've met many dead people, but that's kind of normal for dead people. They're unresponsive. When I preach a funeral and we have a casket down here in front of the church, I don't expect when I say good things about the person in that casket that I'll hear an amen from down there. Doesn't usually happen. And of course you understand that this door is a metaphor. And physical death is a metaphor for spiritual death. These are comparable only in the likeness of being lifeless, either physically or spiritually. And so if a person is dead, how does he respond? If he responds, there must be life first. Isn't that right? And so a person must be brought to life in order to hear. Now, I want you to go to the Gospel of John, chapter 5. This is where we read in our reading a little bit earlier. Near the end of this chapter, Jesus speaks of the resurrection. This was before his death, and he indicated that he would be raised from the dead. That's in verse number 26, John 5, 26. For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given the Son to have life in himself. God gives life. Does anybody disagree with that? God gives life. Life is in God, and Jesus Christ is God, and he has the power of life in himself. Now, in distinction to this, each of us is spiritually dead. That's, that's the contrast that's trying to be made here. Each of us is spiritually dead, and in Jesus Christ there is life. So if you're saved, who is it that makes the decision that you would live? Well, if you're dead, how do you make that decision? You can't. And so you need verse number 21 where Jesus goes, this goes on. He says, for as the father raiseth up the dead and quickeneth them, even so the son quickeneth whom he will. So the son is on the outside of the door and he makes alive whomever he wills to make alive. And so you see then, it's not that dead person on the other side of the door that decides to open it. Christ decides when that door will open. And you need to be thankful that he does. Be thankful because despite what you've done, and despite the awful wickedness of a heart that would crucify him, he decides to open the door. Now look at verse number 25. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself. The dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and live. That's the voice. That voice is the sound of knocking. And how will they hear it? Well, the Son of God brings them to life to hear. Now let me explain why you need to know this. You need to know it because when you get this clear in your understanding... There is never a way that you would ever claim that salvation is because of something that you did. That you can't say that you're saved because you're smart. You can't say that you're saved because you were baptized. You can't say that you're saved because you pay your tithes. You give offerings. Or you do penance. You're not saved because you went to Mass. If you're to put your finger on any reason that you're saved, it can only be this, that Christ decided to save you. 
You were dead, and he brought you to life so that you could hear and be saved. The Bible says faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And you can't hear unless Christ takes the initiative to make you alive. So very clearly, the scriptures show in unmistakable ways that salvation is God's decision. In fact, you don't help God in salvation. The only thing that you can do is stand in the way. You stand in the way of your salvation. Why do you believe? Well, it's not because it was first your decision. It was because it was first God's decision. And let me tell you that your willingness to be saved is not your willingness to be saved. It's God's willingness to save you. And let me tell you that one more time. To be saved, it's not your willingness to be saved. It's God's willingness to save you. And if you get that right, you'll understand who deserves the recognition for salvation. Is God willing to save us? This is what we must have. We must have a God that's willing to resurrect the spiritually dead sinner because the sinner can't do anything for himself. And so is God willing to save? Well, don't you see him in Revelation 3.20? He's standing at the door. These are sinners on the other side. These are crucifiers. These are wicked and hateful people. They're wretched. He's already said this. You're wretched. You're miserable. You're poor. You're blind. And you're naked. Until they know what they are and understand what they are and understand that they're not fine and need something, they're not ready to be saved. And so who tells them this? Is God willing to save them? The question is, is he willing to save you? And the answer to that is yes, absolutely yes. That was his purpose of coming into the world. He came into the world because no one would seek him. Have you read that in Romans 3? There is no one who seeks God. There is no one who opens doors for him. And so what must Christ do? He must initiate. He must seek the lost. They have no idea they're lost. A Jewish scholar named Montefiore said that there was no Jewish prophet or rabbi who ever imagined a conception of God going out on a quest for sinful men who were not seeking him, but had turned away from him. The National Christian Council of Japan, where Shintoism and Buddhism are the main religions, explained the difference between Christianity, the distinctive difference between Christianity and other religions as this, that only in Christianity is God found taking the initiative of seeking man. In all other religions, man seeks God. Does that tell you whether he's willing or unwilling? Jesus said he came to save, to seek and to save the lost, and the lost are not willing because they're dead. Christ seeks them and he brings them to life in order to believe. Well, does that mean that Christ saves people against their will? I mean, this is always the objection that we get when we preach things like this. Well, you're telling me that Christ saves people against their will. There are people who don't want to be saved, but you're going to save them anyway. But have you ever heard me saying anything of the sort? Did you hear me say anything about that in the last 30 minutes? No, I said that Christ saves people who do not have the will to come to him. He resurrects people that have no sensibility. And when he shines the light of the gospel into them, then they are most willing to come. In fact, they want to come so badly, they'll not be kept away. Were you willing when you came to Christ? Did you come willingly? Did you want to come? Were you glad when you did come to him? Is there any of you right now who says you are so sorry that you're a Christian? There's not a person in all of history that was flogged to come to Christ. Oh, there are many that were flogged and killed 
And yet they wouldn't give up their faith in Christ when they had believed. So all I'm saying, folks, is this. If you are saved, you must give all the glory to God. Psalm 110, verse 3 says, Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. In the beauties of holiness, from the womb of the morning, thou hast the dew of thy youth. That's beautiful. In God's power, people are willing. Now let me take you back to John 5, verse number 24. Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, and by the way, verily, verily, that's amen, amen, I say unto you, He that believeth my word, heareth my word, and believeth on him that sent me, hath everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Now notice at the end of that verse it says, If you hear and believe, you have passed from death unto life. Belief shows that passing from death to life has taken place. You were spiritually dead, now you are spiritually alive. Now keep your finger in that text, and we want to look again back in Revelation 3. And in verse number 21 of Revelation 3, Jesus said, To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and have sat down with my Father in his throne. There he says, To him that overcomes. Who is he speaking of? Well, he's speaking of believers. Those who overcome are believers in Christ. So it means that they have overcome the sin that bound them, the thing that kept the door locked. The chains of sin bound them. And then when Christ comes in, he looses those chains and he throws Satan out. He frees you from the chains of sin that keep you from getting up. He throws Satan out to ensure that you will overcome. So this is our second observation. The resurrection of saints to eternal life. Now the focus shifts to those that believe. Christ opened the door. He's done that. Repentance and faith have resulted. They have believed. So what's going to happen to them? Well, Christ's resurrection holds another precious benefit for them. First, they have been resurrected to spiritual life. That's where they find their hope. This is new hope in Him. People who say that Christians are April fools, will learn, yes, we are indeed crazy about Christ. We are. And we we have a hope that they're never going to experience without Him. Then secondly, our faith in Him ensures that we have eternal life. Now, fools think that contentment is to die like a dog dies. But folks, I'm not content to die that way. Now we return to John 5, verses 28 and 29. Jesus said, Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming, in the which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice and shall come forth, they that have done good under the resurrection of life. So because we have been made alive to hear Christ's call, he says, Now the door can open. Now the door of salvation opens, and I will come in, and I will dine with you. And because of that call and that response, we receive another call. And this is a call that may come before you die, Or it may come after you die. And I can't tell you which it will be. And it doesn't really matter which. Because if you die, you're not going to miss this call. Death makes no difference to a Christian. The Son of God has life in himself, doesn't he? That's what it says. He makes dead people come to life. And if you've had that first call to spiritual life, then you'll hear this second call, even though your body is dead and in the grave. And that second call is a call to glorification. This is the body raised and changed to be made into the 
a likeness of the sinless body of Jesus Christ. The same power that raised him will raise you. Listen to this great news in Romans 8:11. But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. Now there we see that word quickened again. Your mortal body, the body that dies, will be quickened and we brought to life. And there's pretty much all the proof that we need what he means by quickened. It's a difference between life and death. And this is a, uh, it's in this place of Revelation 3.21. He says, you're going to be there with me where Christ sits on the throne with the Father in his throne. Where is that? In heaven. You'll live forever with him in heaven. And we just have to ask, who's the fool now? We're going to be with him in heaven. So the resurrection of Christ ensures that you hear two calls. First of all, you hear a call of life to Christ in Christ today. And then you hear another call of life in Christ for all of eternity. But I want you to get the right picture of that so I can tell you, really, that first call is a call to eternal life. That if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, the very moment that you believe, you are as sure for heaven as if you're already there. Now, the second call is not to give you eternal life, but it is because you have eternal life. And you wouldn't hear that call if eternal life was not already in your possession. John 5.29 says that this life is for those that have done good. Now, he doesn't mean that your goodness will save you. We already know that. We don't have any goodness. The person that's behind the door is a sinner, a sinner that has crucified Christ. So the goodness refers to the response to the call that they have been given this gift of God, this good gift, which is faith and repentance in him. But I've got to close with this, and it's not good. This is for the skeptics. This is for the real April fools. And that is the resurrection of sinners to eternal death. Jesus said, marvel not at this, for the hour is coming, in the which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice, And shall come forth, they that have done good under the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil under the resurrection of damnation. There is a resurrection of saints, and there is a resurrection of sinners. These aren't the same. They're separated in time. Those who aren't saved will be in that second resurrection. You and I, that are believers in Jesus Christ, will be in the first Revelation 20 verse 6 says, Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. There isn't anything good about the second resurrection because it's a resurrection to eternal death. Spiritual death is separation from God. Now there's one commentator that wrote, It it would have been harsh to say the resurrection of death... That is meant for sinners rise from death to death. The resurrection of both classes is an exercise in sovereign authority. But in the one case, it's an act of grace. In the other, an act of justice. And this is where I leave you today. The resurrection of Christ was when by his power he came out of a sealed tomb. There was a door there. It was an impossible door to open. No handles, no knobs, no way out of that tomb except by divine power. And as we look at Revelation 3.20, we can say that the way into your life is also a door. 
And instead of no handle on the outside, as the picture shows, there is surely no handle on the inside that can be reached up to and grabbed until Christ in resurrection power enables you to lift your hand to open that door. So how do you know that Christ is at that door? If you hear him today, it's because he's already determined to open the door. And if you feel his spirit today, it means that he's already in that process of moving you from death to life to enable that door to open. And when that door opens, who will you thank? To whom do you owe your greatest debt of gratitude? By divine permission, he granted repentance and faith unto eternal life so that you will never be able to say, look what I did Instead, you say with the Apostle Paul, we are fools for Christ's sake. And with the benefits that he offers by his resurrection, I gladly own that title, a fool for Jesus Christ. Well, friends, thank God that he is alive. He stands at no doors unless he is alive. He says to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We've heard it in 32, 33 sermons. Now, 33 now. 33 sermons, we've heard what the Spirit says to the church, and it tells us to repent, believe, to come to Jesus Christ. And he says to us, The world seeth me no more, but ye see me, because I live, ye shall live also. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for Jesus Christ. Again, we say it over and over. We thank you for the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and what that means to lost sinners and how we can come to you for salvation. Lord, we're thankful that we are, though unable to open any doors, though we have no spiritual understanding, though we didn't seek you, that Jesus came into this world to seek and to save sinners. You came to open that door. And Lord, by the call that you give, by the power of that call, by the power of the operation of your Holy Spirit upon our heart, we are enabled to respond to something that we could never hear, that we could never do, that we have no power over. And we are content to leave it at that, to leave it in your hands, because you always do things well. You're not going to harm any person. You're not going to harm anyone by drawing them to you and opening that door for eternal life. No, we thank God. We thank you, Lord, that you do it. And we praise you. That once our eyes are open to the gospel of Jesus Christ, we gladly come. We want to open the door when we see who Christ is. Thank you, Lord. Open some lost sinner's heart to the gospel of Jesus Christ today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.